Hello, welcome to my podcast, The Mongols, Chinese Emperors. This is episode two, Building an Empire. In the last episode, I spoke about the beginnings of the Mongol nation. We learned about Genghis Khan and that he united the tribes that comprised the steppe region of Central Asia. We also learned about his vision and plan to bring the known world under Mongolian control. I broke down the geopolitics of China as it existed around the year 1200. I also mentioned the Mongol invasion of the Tangut Empire and the initial salt into the Jin Dynasty of northern China. In this episode, I will talk about the expansion of the Mongol Empire. I will provide a slight introduction to the Khans that came after Genghis Khan, Ogadai, Guyuk, Monkey, in Kublai. In this episode, we'll also learn a little bit about the great military commander of the Mongol Empire, Subutai Badar. Finally, both the Tangut and the Jin empires would permanently fall. That would set up the ultimate confrontation with the Southern Song dynasty in China. Genghis Khan's death left several projects unfinished. Obviously, one was the conquest of China. There were also active military operations involving the Russian steppe region. And there was, of course, his successor. That would be Genghis Khan's successor. As many of you know, the deaths of monarchs and emperors has been known to provide fertile ground for civil wars over succession. But in this instance, Genghis had left his intentions clear before his death and received assurances that succession would be smooth. And it was, this time. One of his sons, Ogadai, was his preference, and he became the next Khan over the Mongolian Khanate. It needs to be noted that Genghis Khan left an empire stretching from the Caspian Sea to the west, the China Sea to the east, Siberia to the north, and Tibet to the south. The western edge of their empire would eventually be referred to as the Golden Horde. I said in the last episode I wanted to talk more about the Mongol warrior and their military tactics. I believe it is important to understand at least a little in this area as it helps define who these conquerors were. The Mongols required every male 
from the age of 15 to 70 to serve in the military. The Mongol warrior, the typical Mongol warrior, was a superb horseman, considered among the world's best. Each horseman on the military campaign brought multiple mounts, usually three or four. This allowed them to move quickly, not having to stop to rest their horses. They were known to move as much as 80 miles a day. Their mobility being the best offense and defense. The Mongol military force was primarily all cavalry, divided between heavy and light cavalry. The warriors' outerwear usually comprised of armor made from scales of either iron or leather. They wore iron-rounded, cone-shaped helmets. Each warrior carried at least two bows. Bows, of course, being their most important weapon, but they also carried a sword and a mace. The Mongols were excellent archers. The warriors generally did not rely on fires for cooking or warmth. They were generally self-sufficient, preferring to stay on the back of their horses. They did not need to cook their food, as they relied heavily on dried meats and yogurt. The Mongols also did not use supply trains on campaigns. They lived on the land and whatever they personally brought with them. In battle, if a warrior was wounded, his commanding officer would stay with the wounded warrior. This led to legendary camaraderie between the officer and his warriors. The Mongols used extensively psychological terror. Wherever they went, civilian casualties was expected. But the Mongol terror was just not about bloodlust, looting, and plunder. They used terror as a part of their military offensive to encourage their adversaries and the civilians to surrender. After a town had been captured or it surrendered, the Mongols placed the survivors into three groups. The most desirable were the well-educated and the tradesmen. The next desirable were able-bodied males and females. The tradesmen, well-educated, Males and females were made into slaves. Some sent back to Mongolia. Others were used on the site by the warriors. The young, old, and feeble were executed. A common ploy Mongol commanders used was they would split their forces and attack at different points at once. The commanders avoided attacks headlong into enemy lines, preferring instead to flanking maneuvers, archers, and artillery. In addition to the feigned retreat tactic I spoke about in the last episode, they built fires, decoy fires, all some distance apart, to fool their enemy into thinking the Mongols were where they weren't. Another 
Decoy tactic was to send their warriors behind their lines and drag tree limbs along dusty roads to make it appear that the military numbers were larger than they were in reality. Finally, the Mongols learned to be adaptable. Having fleet horses sometimes gave them no advantage, such as in sieges or mountains, but nonetheless, the Mongols were quite clever in adapting to all situations. In summary, the Mongol warriors were successful, especially in Western Asia and Eastern Europe, because they were not known. They were also expert horsemen and archers. They could ride and live on horseback for days. Great mobility. They tended to use stocky but fast horses that were better suitable for the myriad of conditions and climates they fought in. The Mongol commanders would split their forces and attack along multiple fronts. And yes, terror. They used terror to to force their enemies into capitulation. The Mongol warriors and the commanders were highly adaptable. They learned from their enemies. And finally, because of their mobility, they never gave their enemies a good opportunity to launch attacks and or counterattack. This discussion segues nicely into this next segment. And I want to spend a moment discussing Subutai Badur. Who was he? Well, he was the Mongols and arguably one of the world's most renowned military commanders. He would, be lo- he would be long gone before the height of the Mongolian Empire, but his contribution to that cause was enormous, and any history of the Mongols would be incomplete without some discussion of him. He was born in the year 1176 to nondescript parents in Mongolia. He rose in status during the life and reign of Genghis Khan, although he still had an active hand in the Mongol military operations long after Genghis died. Subutai was known for his loyalty, brilliance, bravery, and achievements. It has been claimed that he conquered 32 nations and won 65 pitched battles. His army was alleged to have been able to travel 4,000 miles in less than three years. Of all the many and noteworthy Mongol military commander, he stands above them all. He assisted Genghis in his campaigns against the Shishia and Jin empires. He also led the main forces into the Eastern Europe campaigns. Subutai died in the year 1248. Oddly, when he returned for the last time from his military adventures, and until the date of his death, his name disappears from Mongol history. More than one modern military commander has commended Subutai's military leadership. Many have argued 
he belongs as one of the top 10 military commanders in world history. That's a tall claim. In the year 1230-1231, the Mongols returned to Jin, China to complete the task they started 10 years earlier. And they returned in force. This time, led by Genghis's son, Ogadai, who was then the new Khan. He immediately attacked the Jin capital at Kaifeng. And by the year 1233, it fell and the Jin emperor committed suicide. That officially ended the 120-year run of the Jin dynasty. For the next few decades, it would be ruled by Mongolian proxies. Around this same time period, Ogadai Khan moved the Mongolian capital to Kara Korum, Mongolia. We all know, though, that is not the national capital of Mongolia today. Today, you would find nothing but ruins at Kara Korum. The Sung Emperor, south of the Yangtze River, could not help relishing in the defeat of the Jin. I doubt, however, they took the Mongols as serious as they should. The Song's new northern neighbors were far worse than the Jin. So what happened here with the Jin dynasty? After all, the Jin were known to have an excellent military force, commanders, and weapons. Maybe stranger, the second Mongol attack into Jin China went easier and quicker than the first. One would have thought the Jin would be better prepared, especially when you consider the Mongols had never completely left Jin China during the interregnum. So no surprise, they would return someday. But there were two things going on. One, the Jin spent most of that time during the interregnum continuously fighting along the southern border with the Song. Ever since the Jin had defeated the northern Song over a century before, the Song never conceded and never gave up trying to retake the area from the Jin. Secondly, the division and use of Jin resources engaging the Song fatally affected their ability to effectively fight and deal with the determined Mongols coming from the north. Ogadai Khan was as busy with empire building as was his father, Genghis Khan. In 1229, he sent Mongol forces to the lower Volga River region. But Ogadai had a serious problem on his hand. Despite all the tribute that poured into Mongolia, by the year 1235, the empire verged on bankruptcy. On top of that, Ogadai had a reputation as a profligate. The desire for conquest and bankruptcy plays in a loop. The desire for tribute fuels conquest that then fuels bankruptcy that then fuels the desire for more tribute and conquest and on and on. 
So the Mongolian desire for conquest, particularly at the time of Ogarai's reign, was partially responsible for his decision to send military operations into Russia and Europe in the year 1237. And it may have also been a motivation for sending Mongolian forces into Song, China, too. For five years, the Mongols waged war in Russia, Krakow, Poland, and Buda and Pest in Hungary. Subutai, the great Mongolian commander, actually suggested conquest of the Eastern Europe region based on his reconnaissance missions there he performed several years earlier. But in December of the year 1241, Ogodai died. His death was a jolt and caused two things to happen. The Mongol campaigns in Russia and Eastern Europe abruptly ended, so the military forces could return to Mongolia, to Mongolia and they would never return again to that or those regions. His death also caused a major succession battle for his throne. Eventually, we know, his son Guyuk became the Khan, but not before the schism splintered the royal family for years and almost split the empire. In fact, eventually it did. For the five years after Ogadai's death, the empire was run by his widow, that was pretty customary for the Mongols. And she chose her son, Guyuk. Finally, in the year 1246, Guyuk became the Khan. But it was not a decision the other royal princes liked. Guyuk, however, died young and only after a few years ruling the Khanate. The next Khan was chosen in the year 1251. He was also grandson to Genghis Khan, a cousin to the deceased Khan, Guyuk. But he was from a different line of the family than Guyuk, and there is why the empire split. It was not the same line as Genghis to Ogadai. The new Khan was named Monkey Khan. And let me verge off of the chronology here a little and talk a little bit about Monkey Khan. I will get back to the chronology and the Mongol attack of the Sung Empire. Under Monkey, the Mongol Empire reached its zenith. He centralized imperial authority and assembled the resources to begin the subjugation of the Sung dynasty. Monkey Khan was what was the one that decided to expand the empire into Song China and the Muslim lands between Persia and the Mediterranean Sea. Monkey personally led the invasion into Song China. His plan for the Song began in 1252, soon after he ascended to the Khanate. He and his brother Kublai were the two most responsible for the Song operations. Monkey Khan, however, died in the year 1259 in the middle of the Song campaign. For all of Monkey's achievements, and there were many 
he bears responsibility for the succession crisis that followed his death. He failed to clearly provide an uncontested line of succession. That failure started a family war that lasted many years after his death. And that family war forever shattered the Mongolian Empire. The succession, the succession crisis of the year 1260 swiftly exposed the family's animosities and territorial rivalries among the many Mongolian princes that were hidden but were obviously festering during Monkey's reign. Following the succession crisis, the empire was split into four independent regional khanates, each pursuing their own separate interests and aims. Only one of the khanates remained loyal to Monkey's successor, his brother Kublai, and also, who was also Genghis Khan's grandson. The four khanates continued to cooperate, however, with each other well into the 14th century. But the campaigns against the Chinese Sung and the Muslim Caliphate were the last unified military venture of the Mongolian Empire. Obviously stopping their aim to dominate the known world. Monkey Khan would be the last Khan that would base the Mongolian capital in Karakoram, Mongolia. Now, as I've said before, just a ruin. Kublai Khan moved the Mongolian capital to Beijing in the year 1260. In the next episode, I'll take a closer look at Kublai, who is an important figure in this history. I will get into the preparations for the final conquest of the Sung dynasty. And, yes, the Sung dynasty will fall to Kublai and the Mongols. And there is more. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. <laughs>